and I'm speaking to Professor Susan Wolfe. Thank you very much for coming onto the program today. Thanks for having me. Now, you've got quite a busy schedule. Tell us what brought you to this country. Original invitation was to give the Alan Saunders lecture in honour of the the late broadcaster who did the Philosopher's Zone. So I gave that lecture last night on the ethics of being a foodie. Uh, And then since that's connected to the uh, AAP convention, I'm giving another talk tomorrow. That sounded really interesting, the ethics of being a foodie. So what what do you mean by the ethics of being a foodie? The the subject, which was inspired by the fact that when I looked up more about Alan Saunders, it turned out that in addition to being a, a philosopher and champion of public philosophy, he was also a, a food writer and had a food program for a long time. I take uh, the way I was defining foodie for was as an enthusiast about food for aesthetic reasons. So someone who loves food for its taste and is willing to spend a lot of their expendable resources, time and money, pursuing tastes. The basic question was, for me, was how to explain the antipathy that I think a lot of people have towards that as, a, as an extracurricular interest. Why, are people, why do people find foodieism morally questionable. I'm kind of a foodie, and so I'm a bit of a defensiveness on my part, but uh, I just wanted to pursue what the what the hostility towards foodieism was. Well, it's quite interesting, I think, now with social media as well. I notice that a lot of people will go out to a cafe or a restaurant and think, wow, look look at this. It's so well presented. And they'll take a photo of it and post it on their Facebook page for everybody to see and probably be envious of. Uh, well, so that it is something I've heard lots of people are really turned off by people who post uh, food pictures on social media. I confess I take a lot of pictures on my phone of food that I think is beautiful and sometimes send them to my daughter. I don't post on social media, but I don't see the problem. If someone posted to them, I would love looking at them. So I think it is the concern that it's bragging rights, that it's to make people envious. Of course, if that's what's really going on, that is objectionable and people shouldn't do that. And hearing that people are offended by it, I make a note to myself, don't ever post a picture of, except maybe the food that you make that you like the presentation of, that that would be acceptable, I think. Yeah, yeah. probably a birthday cake or something for special occasion. Now, that would be be more acceptable, wouldn't it, than just every day sort of breakfast If it's something you're making, it's a, a, a proud achievement as opposed to look what kind of place I got to go to and spend money on. And, all right. Yeah. But, all right. Yeah. So uh, Still, I think food is beautiful. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, we've all, we've, yeah. Well, I think, I think we, all, we all have to eat food, don't we, to survive. So that's a, and it's interesting how it's sort of become a lot more than, than just survival and just really for nourishment, really. It's a lot for enjoyment. Now, we'll, we'll actually get on to the topic that I wanted to speak to you about, sure. and that's morality, meaning, and love. So what was it that inspired you to study morality, meaning, and love? In some ways, I think my entire career I've been studying those subjects. Of course, in some ways, doesn't isn't that part of living a human life to be, <laughs> uh, if not studying, at least uh, experiencing 
and raising questions about those issues. But from a very early time in my philosophical education, I think I reacted against a, a tendency that I found throughout philosophy to divide human interests and human motives into the self-interested and the moral or the egoistic and the altruistic and the personal and the impersonal. I always felt that dichotomy was overly sketched and overly distinct. And I think the, one of the very first talks I gave as a professional philosopher was about love as an area, love of individual human beings, love and friendship, an area in which that dichotomy didn't make sense. When you did something for the sake of a friend, it wasn't self-interested in the sense that you'd actually be willing to sacrifice yourself. You maybe weren't even thinking about yourself. You were doing it for the friend or the loved one. But it wasn't morally motivated. It wasn't, I'm doing it to be a good person or out of duty. Your Love is the motivating factor. And it seemed, look, we should, this is an Aristotelian concept also, I think. Aristotle cares a lot about friendship. But that it was a great resource because it, it avoided the dichotomy and also the tension that people often feel between morality and one's own good. So that was, as I say, long an interest of mine. And then eventually I realized that that what gave meaning to our lives, so that was the word meaning for me is connected to this idea of what makes life meaningful. What gave meaning to our lives is, according to me, the range of things that that we love and and that therefore motivate us to engage in activities or with things that we love that we also think are worthy of love. So again, it's a way of, it avoids and in a way is a perspective from which to critique the sense that either you do things for morality's sake or from some impersonal point of view or you do them for your own sake, most of what I think many of us do are for not, neither of those explanations. We do them out of love for individuals, people, but also philosophy or, or beauty or a cause that we're committed to. So could you explain about the differences between moral and non-moral values? Well, it's... The vocabulary of you know what counts as a moral value and what counts as a non-moral value is is highly contested, and different people use those words in different ways. I think there's a there are good reasons to identify moral values with the values that have to do with treating other people, or at least other sentient creatures, with appropriate care and respect, recognizing their equal worth or their their objective worth and that everything insofar as your life or your actions are evaluated through the lens of appreciating those facts you're engaging in things in a moral way in from a moral perspective not necessarily a morally correct way but at least a, a morally conscious way but there are lots of things that I think are deeply valuable for which that's not 
a particularly significant perspective. So aesthetics is one area where, you know, when you find something beautiful, that doesn't really have anything to do with whether you're treating other people with equal care and respect. And I think, again, love, even love for individuals, the love I have for my children isn't a love that's equal to the love I have for the strangers, you know, down the block, even though those strangers are as morally deserving of care and uh, and respect as my children. That's not that's not the way I orient my life. No, I don't think it's, it's the way most people would would orient their lives. That well, people that they know, people that they're familiar with, and you know. Um, really are a priority and and I actually even thought that I mean there has been arguments put forth that you can save lives in other countries because there's you know millions of millions of people starving every day and I I think that if I was to walk around the block and see these starving people in the street I'd, I'd rush home and and make them a sandwich or some food and, you know, give them a blanket and whatever. And I, I think it's that sort of thing of out of sight, out of mind, isn't it? Well, that arguably is a serious moral problem. I mean, we don't want out of sight to be out of mind because they need help. And we, you know, if, if we're in a position to give it, you know, the moral issue is is bringing that into your consciousness. But I also think... Our lives don't need to be unilaterally given over to helping the most people all the time. I mean, there's that. It's important that that be a part of your sensibility and that you respond to it. But we're not, I think, sort of thrown into the universe in order to serve the universe, and we have our own. It's perfectly all right and not in need of apology to live one's own life and have one's own specific people that one cares about and one's own specific interests. So I think the right way to think about morality is a, is a way of figuring out how to integrate the, if you like, objective perspective that there are deserving people or maybe all people are deserving deserving of the basic things in life thanks for downloading a 3cr podcast 3cr is an independent community radio station based in melbourne australia we need your financial support to keep going go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online now stay tuned for your 3cr podcast this is Catherine mcdonald here announcing 3CR Radical Philosophy Program it's on 8.55 on your AM dial your fantastic philosophy program introducing us to women philosophers Like some food for thought? Tune in to Radical Philosophy with discussions on freedom, happiness, knowledge evil and rational argument with words from Hawthorne Tatman, Jenkins, Hutchinson Hirsi Ali and Plumwood Let's get radical about philosophy. While also leaving room to live a life that's meaningful to you as an individual. What is the relationship between morality and partiality? 
Also, it's a big issue in, in moral philosophy. By partiality, I mean caring about certain things or certain people, especially, especially even though they are objectively not more important or more deserving than anyone else. So wanting to read your child a bedtime story rather than the the child next door who's equally need in need of a bedtime story, that would be a case of partiality. Am I allowed to give my energies to my children rather than someone else's? Am I allowed to care about my neighborhood or my country rather than someone else's? There are two interesting questions about morality and partiality. One is, does morality have room for partiality? And what if if the answer is yes, what what shape does that give morality? So there's, as you know, utilitarian theories that say morality should be aimed, at least in the final ultimate goal, at maximizing the good of everyone, where each person counts for one and no one for more than one. And that would suggest that you should you should be impartial across people or across sentient creatures in the distribution of at least the end product of what's good. There are ways within utilitarian theory, I guess, to say, well, if everyone cares about the people near them, we're going to maximize utility because people will be more efficient that way than if they, if they, tr- if each person individually tries to help the whole world, that's actually not going to be successful in helping the whole world. But overall, I think that's just, well, that's just not the way I would, uh, I think, I don't think morality does require us to give equal attention and care to all people. We should, as I, as we were saying just a minute ago, look, you should care somewhat about it, everyone, but it doesn't mean you have to sort of devote yourself to, to or ignore all the personal ties you have to specific individuals. So that suggests morality should take a different shape. It shouldn't be utilitarian. It should be. And so Kantian morality is a different version, a different way of thinking of equality, according to which you think, well, what's morally right is constrained by this idea that you shouldn't let yourself do anything that you wouldn't let other people do. But that gives you room. You could say, look, I, I'm willing to let other people give special attention to their children in exchange for my permission to give special attention to my children. That's also a way of being equal. Like, I don't expect them to do anything different from what I do. But what we're all morally permitted to do is attend specially to our own children or the people that we particularly care about or the causes that we're particularly interested in fighting for or whatever. So that's one way morality and partiality the question of morality and partiality is a question within philosophical moral theory and thinking what's the shape of morality such that it leaves room for partial relationships without apology. But then I'm also interested in a different kind of question, which is are there ever occasions when morality in whatever, in its best form and partiality just conflict where you just have to choose either save your daughter's life or do the morally appropriate thing and and who's to say what a person is supposed to do in those circumstances basically 
Would an example of that be, uh, I know there's uh, quite a large trade in human organs. Yes. And they've actually, I mean, w- when you when you look at, you know, third world countries, I mean, life life is incredibly cheap. There's people dying on the street. There's people starving. And so, you know, people either either sell their organs or even even could be actually killed and have their organs removed. Yes. But for somebody living in a fairly affluent Western country uh, like we do, as you were saying, if your daughter's terminally ill, it's an option to go and buy an organ. Yes. So, but, I mean, when you look at the, at the moral surrounding that. Yes. It's, hor- it, it's uh, frightening. Actually, that's an interesting example. It's interesting that you should come up with that example right away. I... Many years ago, before I had started writing about this, but maybe this was part of what got me to write about this, there was an episode on television. It was a—I don't know if the show Law and Order came to Australia. For it was—it was a very long-running show. In the early days, there was an episode in which someone basically kidnapped a, a person, removed a kidney or something that he in order to save his daughter's life. He didn't kill the person, but it was not a consensual thing. It was an outrage. So anyway, that's what happened. He was he did this thing and for the sake of saving the life of his child. I saw that show and found it appalling, outrageous, horrible behavior. The next day, I was talking on the phone with my mother, <laughs> who... I guess had seen the same episode and somehow we talked about it and she said I would have done the same thing. And my first reaction was just like how I was to be appalled like how could you do that? But philosophically, I have to say the idea of I mean I had no qualms in I had it didn't make me think it was the morally right thing to do. But I thought, well, it's not that it's the motive, which is just I love my children so fiercely that I am willing to be immoral for them. Is It's not an appalling motive. There's a way in which you could see it as, well, I don't know, admirable is perhaps the wrong word, but I, I, I just I couldn't condemn it either. And... Um, even though I think as a representative of society, of the moral, of the system of morality, I'd say this is unacceptable. I draw the line. It's clearly immoral. On the other hand, if, if it were you and your daughter, what would you do? Or what, what would you think of someone who did this other thing? I find myself on the fence as to whether or if maybe torn between condemning them in one respect and understanding them in in another. It's an in- interesting case that uh, I did see that episode of Laura and Order. Oh, you did? I, I, I'm very <laughs> okay. fond of, fond of Clearly, the series. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, yeah, I did see that. And I suppose the main issue was that the person really would only suffer limited setbacks in life from losing that kidney. But... And and it's interesting too because uh, what what is what is the morality surrounding 
human and non-human animal transplants because I remember quite a few years ago there was a case of baby Faye who was born with a congenital heart condition and she needed a heart transplant. And I'm probably going back over 30 years ago when we don't have the advances in surgery and medicine that we do now. But she, what, what they did was they strapped down a baby chimpanzee or it was some great ape and really? they actually couldn't give this ape any, any painkillers or any drugs at all yeah. and they just strapped them down and they cut the heart out oh. of, this, oh my gosh. of this ape and transplanted it into baby Faye and people were absolutely morally outraged that yes. this went on. Yes. Now the baby had an you know it was extremely limited amount of time to live right. with or without the heart. So yes. first of all there was the issue of having the animal treated in this way which is absolutely shocking yes. but there there was also the issue that people brought up the the moral issue of why would anybody put their baby daughter through surgery when they fairly well knew that she was only going to live a couple of months and die anyway which was the case yes right I, it's hard for me to see a sympathetic view to that action at all I, right i don't see where that could come from no no it made worldwide news yes and it was interesting too because it was it was made so public whereas a lot of animal experiments they're not made public they're they're kept away from away from everybody yes and people don't realize what's actually going on so but but this one being new new sort of surgical technique was actually brought to people's attention and uh, it made me wonder after that whether they just kept any experimental surgery like this quiet or perhaps they didn't do it because of the general public's moral outrage. Well, I I hope we've come a long way since then in recognizing both a kind of respect for great apes and even lower animals and just a a willingness to step back and, and question Right. I think general an- treatment of animals and the the priority of both anything for science and anything for a human life as, as comparatively. I do think we've we've moved a long way, but there are still all kinds of problems with secrecy of treatment of animals to avoid the pressures of the public and of animal protection groups. Now you've written about morality and the view from here. Yes. Uh, well, that's a bit connected to the things we've talked about already. Uh, uh, the idea that morality, that, that thinking of morality as issuing judgments that, as it were, stand above a personal perspective and evaluate the world and say, this is the best, this would be the best outcome in the world, and therefore your job as the as the person on the ground, is to make it come about. And it abstracts from your personal attachments and your personal interests. And your That is, I think, a common way that moral philosophy, when I started doing philosophy, I mean, in the you know, 20th, mid-20th century, well, 
I was born in the mid-20th century. But anyway, uh, um, you know, moral philosophy for, uh, you know, the last 40 years took that as the standard, uh, you know, as morality was an objective and, you know, took an objective and impersonal point of view. And so it was a view from subspecie eternitatis or just a, a view from above or that abstracted from the personal point of view. But I think that's just not, in the end an appropriate or feasible way to think about morality, that, I, that rather one should think about morality at, as a matter of figuring out how to integrate the appreciation of, of universal and, import, and impersonal values into a life that is shot through with personality and individual cares and interests. Right, well, thanks very much for taking the time out of your busy schedule and for coming onto the program. So, well, it was a real pleasure. Thanks for having me. And you've been listening to Professor Susan Wolfe speaking about morality, meaning and love. <laughs>